Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Coming up on this week's show, the Amiga Mini is finally on its way. A true classic hits the Super Nintendo and Mega Drive. And we chat to Chris Barnett of Explaining Computers. The Retro Hour podcast is made possible each week with our wonderful friends at Bitmap Books. Now, you need to check out Commodore Amiga, a visual compendium, over 420 pages celebrating 140 of the biggest games on the platform and bringing them to life and interviewing some of the biggest developers, publishers, including RJ Michael, David Braben, Sid Meier, and lots more. You can check out that and all their other retro titles at bitmapbooks.co.uk. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 288, your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to the show that takes you behind the scenes on the world of retro computing and gaming with exclusive interviews on the show this week. And we bring you up to speed with everything that's been happening in the world of retro with our resident rabble of retro ragamuffins the retro hour crew lots of new stories to get through this week as well including something i'm sure joe was really hyped to talk about the amiga mini is finally very, here i am very hyped to talk about it actually i'll have you know daniel <laughs> now nah, it looks awesome it looks awesome it's well known that you know joe's our console guy ravi and i love amigas but actually the announcement of this mini amiga has been making headlines you know on the metro all these mainstream news sites and actually we've got a bit of an opinion on them um, you know kind of against the grain of what i've seen online recently as to who this is aimed at so we're going to talk more about that in just a bit and i think joe you might be the target audience for this amiga mini you're giving it away you're giving my opinion away <laughs> <laughs> it's not just us harping on about Amigas this time, no. it's everybody else. Yeah, exactly. And there's been a, a remake of, of an Amiga classic game that we need to talk about in just a bit as well. And we are going to be joined by a special guest as always. Now, this is actually someone who we've had quite a lot of requests for, because Sam, um, you may know that we've been running a survey on our website for the last like six weeks or so. And um, a lot of people have been suggesting guests that they want to hear on the show. And I guess this week, Chris Barnett, a load of people mentioned him, we'd love to hear kind of what his history is with computers because he does a really popular YouTube channel called Explaining Computers, which as you'd imagine, I mean, a lot of it is modern technology, isn't it? But he does do quite a bit of retro stuff in there as well. Yeah, his his show is like, it's, it's probably the closest thing to like the BBC uh, in mm. in like a, a presentation style, and it's like he says in the interview, you know, he he aims to be on like BBC One and have that kind of old style computer show. But the presentation is really high quality, and Chris himself is a, a computer science teacher as well, and a, a futurologist. So he kind of knows about the future, but we're actually talking about the retro stuff, but also the future of retro, if that makes any sense. <laughs> Yeah, it's a really interesting interview. And, uh, you know, this week's show is a bit more computer-focused because that's kind of Chris's area. I mean, we talk about games as well in here. Uh, but really, I mean, if you're a fan of, in particular, 8-bit machines from the UK, you know, a lot of Spectrum talk in here, Commodore 64, Amiga talk. And Yeah, you're right. It, it, because, because he's a futurologist, we put a question to him um, in the interview that, you know, what do you think retro is going to look like 
in 20 to 30 years from now? And he gave us some really interesting answers, stuff that we hadn't really thought about before. Yeah, we kind of came up with some really interesting themes and ideas and also looked at the past. Like we were talking about Netscape Navigator and how actually browsers, you, you charged money for browsers. You couldn't do that nowadays. And operating systems as well. Even operating systems are free now. So how things have kind of changed and how the future is going to look with a uh, retro technology. You know, it's mad because obviously Windows XP turns 20 years old in like, what, two or three months and I remember like queuing up for that and paying something like, I feel it was nearly £100, you know, for a, an upgrade kit from yeah, Windows 90. Joe, just imagine if they said like, oh, you need to install Chrome. Um, can you pay 20 quid, please? <laughs> Dan, can you give me a cracked copy? <laughs> <laughs> Ravi's your man for that. Ravi's my man, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this is going to be a really interesting chat. Chris Barnett from the YouTube channel Explaining Computers coming up on the show in around 20 minutes from now. Um, now, we do talk about um, obscure media and stuff in there as well and stuff from back in the day, jazz drives, zip drives. And you've been getting into cassette tape collecting again recently, Ravi. Yeah, I'm, I'm not getting into like my uh, smash hits and <laughs> those kind of old tapes. Your but- banana Rama tapes. But yeah, my Banana Rama collection. Uh, no, I, I've been getting old tapes because I'm, I'm currently volunteering in a charity shop, actually. It's quite good fun. I, I really miss retail and I can pretend that I've got like loads of video games and go through the selection. Um, but I've, I've got a little tape cassette deck and I've found some um, blank tapes as well. And I'm actually going to experience, you know, we, we're so used to fast loading these days. I'm going to experience what it was like because I didn't really have those 8-bit machines to have a game on tape and load it up again and, and kind of sit there waiting for it and uh, hearing the noises and the whirl of the tape. Is, is that a bit sad? I don't know. I predict you'll do it once and then go back to your <laughs> SD card reader. Yeah. <laughs> plug everyone my should experience. <laughs> everyone should experience that way at least once, I think. So, uh, yeah, really good show coming up this week. Now, lots of stuff to get through. Before we do, let's give a mention to one of our amazing sponsors this week. And this is our friends at Old School Gamer Magazine. Now, we're all big fans of magazines. I mean, you even work on a magazine, Revy. Oh, yeah. And, and trust me, it is tough. And it's amazing to see what they've done with Old School Gamer Magazine here. Now, this is dedicated to the gamer who enjoys everything from arcade game collecting, refurbishing systems as well, which, you know, if if you are a retro collector, refurbs are a big part of the hobby these days. Um, You know, playing to the home console gamer, reliving your childhood from the 70s, 80s and 90s. And also what I think is really interesting about Old School Gamer magazine is they do quite focus heavily on the next generation of gamers as well and passing it on to them, which is really cool. Now, the team behind it are lifelong gamers, really passionate about classic games, and they do some really in-depth articles about classic games and hardware. Like, if you check out their website, you can actually sign up for free to their digital version and have a look through it. So this is a free retro gaming magazine, 24 to 30 pages, comes out every other month that you can read. And recently, I've been loving some of their kind of deep dives into stuff like light gun games. I imagine Josie has just lit up when I said that. I haven't actually read the Light Gun one yet, but I was actually reading the Resident Evil trilogy one, the original trilogy on the PlayStation. Um, and I've also got a really interesting one, which is a look back at the 25 years of E3, which is mm. really cool to kind of see it like, you know, grow and change over the years. It's a really, really awesome little magazine. I think it's really cool that um, it's available digitally as well. You know, I work on a magazine and there's a lot of people that read it on an iPad or a tablet or different devices or even on the phone kind of zoomed in. So... Really cool that you get a free digital edition here. 
Yeah, so you can support our podcast and, of course, check out this free Old School Gamer magazine by using our link, which is oldschoolgamer.com slash retro. Give these guys some of your support. They're absolutely incredible, and they've been kind enough to come on board with the Retro Hour as well. So we want everyone to go and check this out right now. Head to this link in your browser, oldschoolgamer.com slash retro, and a big thank you to our friends at Old School Gamer magazine for their support of the Retro Hour. Now let's get into this story that's been absolutely everywhere because we've been looking every week, you know, we do our little thing, you know, we, we chat on Facebook Messenger like, you guys spotted any retro news this week? You know, Joe and I saved them in our Facebook saved section and we put them in a Google Doc and everything. Today we've been looking around and literally everything was just Amiga Mini. Well, can I just do something that I've waited for 28 years to do? <laughs> Which you is, built this up now. This better be good. Amiga is back, baby. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that, that was worth the wait. <laughs> it never went. It never went, Ravi. You guys, you guys have been keeping it alive. <laughs> but this is now. Um, obviously, it's the guys who brought us the sixty-four, and um, which was the Commodore sixty-four Mini that came out a few years ago. Now, then they made the Maxi version, which was a full-size, essentially a Commodore sixty-four replica, FPGA-based, full keyboard on there as well. Uh, this one is one of the mini ones, though. Now. You actually get some really cool stuff with this. And also, you know, it's 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 kind of taken 28 years to get to this point because nothing commercially has kind of been released from the Amiga because there's been legal battles and stuff. So this is the closest thing to anything official you're going to get. But you know what? This is a mini console, and I don't really think it's aimed at me and Dan, who already have Amigas coming out of our ears. It's aimed at someone like Joe, who is a brand new user, and you were actually looking at getting a CD32, weren't you? So uh, what do you think of this machine, and uh, what, what what appeals about it, and what doesn't? Okay, well, I'll start with what doesn't appeal about it, is um, that they're trying to keep the pricing with Amiga going, you know, with it being nice and expensive compared to other consoles. I think it's quite a lot for a mini console that's coming out at £120. Um, Which, if you try and get an Amiga 500, though, yeah, um, you know, good I, some of them go for about 300 quid boxed, you know, good condition I, I, there. I do get that, but if you want to use that same argument with, like, the Sega Mega Drive Mini, which was, like, 60 quid at release, and yeah. at the time you could get a Mega Drive for, like, 30 quid. But I get it, you get all the games of it, and what I do like about it, which is one of the many, one of the reasons I've always been kind of put off old school computers and stuff, is you, it's going to be a plug and play, you're not going to have to piss about. You know, as Ravi just said, you know, changing all the hardware on it, pissing about with cards and stuff like that. It is just going to be, I'm assuming, plug it in and you go ahead and you play it, you plug it into your TV. Um, yeah. I really like that you get the controller, the mouse and the keyboard. I'm not familiar with Amiga um, controllers, in, in, so I don't know if that's... version, uh, the keyboard, like, because when they released the C64 Mini, they had a, a, a the keyboard wasn't working, so you had to plug an external one in. Mm-hmm. And then they released one called the Maxi, which had a working keyboard. And I guess that's because of the price range, like, you know, to get all those keys going and everything. Yeah, and the size. <laughs> and yeah. the size, yeah, yeah. That, that. Yeah, I get, I, I get it, I get it. I was just saying, I think it, it, it's expensive, but I do understand. Um, I will probably buy one. Like, I do really like the look of it, and I like the sound of the games on there as well. Um, it's going to have 25 games on it, and they revealed 12 so far. Um, but what I really, really, really like about it is this is one of the first kind of big release mini consoles I've seen where they are actually advertising that you can put your own USB stick and run your own Amiga ROMs on it. Yeah, like yeah. and also firmware updates. So for, yeah, for, for hackability. You you know. Yeah, you don't you don't see that. I mean, you can do it with like the PlayStation Mini and stuff, but that's not something that they were like openly 
saying they can do, whereas this seems to be pretty open. Like, yeah, you know, stick USB stick in and play some other Amiga ROMs on there. Um, but yeah, I'm really looking forward to playing a bit of Zool, Worms, Chaos Engine, um, and then also Simon the Sorcerer, one you guys always go on about. But yeah, I think it looks cool, and I will agree. I, I don't think it's aimed at, like, Dan, I don't think it's aimed at Ravi. I think it is aimed at people like me who never quite got into it, or some people like your brother, Dan, who are nostalgic for it. He might pick one up. Yeah. And be like, yeah, you know what? I've not, I've not had an Amiga in 28 years. I'll, I'll, I'll buy one. And I'll buy one of these and play it. You know, I think, I think it will do, it will do all right. And, but- and I think it will increase the user base of people interested in Amiga. Like, you know, if, if, if you like someone's mom's going around and goes, oh, you used to have that, and then buys it, then other people may go, oh, I'll actually get one of the original machines, or I'll get one of these new faster ones or something. So, I think it opens it up a bit. Well, let's talk a bit about what comes with it then. So you've got the Amiga, well, it's called the A500 Mini. There's no Amiga branding on here. Mm-hmm. Um, because as we know, you know, the world of Amiga copyrights and licenses, they're very, very complicated. Mm-hmm. They've pretty much been litigation and court cases going on for like, what, 25 years yeah, now? Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Since when, Yeah, pretty much. So this is the A500, it's called, but it looks pretty much identical to, if you can imagine an Amiga 500, um, smaller than your mobile phone, actually, really small little device. It comes with a replica of the original Amiga 500 mouse that is affectionately known as the tank mouse um, by the looks of it, a USB version. And there's actually a photo of the A500 mini next to the mouse and it looks really cute. You know, it's really small. And that's essential as well. You know, they could have packed it with a D-pad that would mean that you'd control up and down and like the mass play, but that really wouldn't work with games like Simon the Sorcerer. And the or si- Lemmings, imagine yeah. trying to play that with a yeah. d <laughs> But then you get a controller with it as well, which um, this has been a bit controversial. Some people are like us. Most of us played Amiga games with a joystick originally. That said, I do know a lot of people that use Mega Drive pads on them back then. And the, this is actually a pad that you get with it, not a joystick. Um, it looks like kind of a um, an evolution of the CD32 controller. Yeah, in many and, ways the, and the original CD32 controllers were absolutely yeah. awful. Like the D-pads were really bad on them. And, this looks nicer. And this looks a lot nicer and a lot more playable. So actually even the controller alone would be something that I'd be interested in. Well, it looks like a cross between a CD32 controller and a SNES controller, really. Now, the colour scheme on it. Nice D-pad on there. you got the two buttons in the middle, like the CD32. Then you've got the, uh, the different colour buttons. It's quite like a SNES. Um, shoulder buttons on the top as well. Um, but I, what I haven't read is, because I know there are some kind of um, third-party controllers available for the Amiga, where you can actually map, like, say, the Y button to be the up button. Because a lot of Amiga yeah. games, platformers up in particular, jump, yeah. yeah, it was up to jump, which if you can remap this... So, like, you could use one of the buttons to jump. That would make, you know, I think a lot of the complaints that I've seen today would be answered. People are, like, you know, trying to jump up on a platformer with a control pad can be very fiddly. But, yeah, I mean, apart from that, it is what you expect, I think. Like you said, Joe, you can put a USB stick in there. It's got um, WHD load support, which lets you um, install Amiga games to a hard disk. You can just download loads of them, put the stick in, and um, really enhance your library. And even though this looks like an Amiga 500, apparently it is going to be able to play later Amiga games like um, the AGA chipset of the Amiga 1200 as well. So A1200 only game should work on here too. So really this is going to give you access to pretty much every Amiga game, you know, all the mainstream ones and should run great it's, on It's here. got three ports at the back. So I guess mm. like one's going to be for the mouse and then you could have two joystick or, or gamepad 
ports, which means you can do that two-player co-op experience, which is like mm. essential with games like Chaos Engine and stuff. You know, when you sit together with your mate or speedball, yeah, and then you could use any any USB controller in there, I reckon. Yeah, and you got HDMI output and just a power connector, and that is it. So yeah, really, it is. I mean, it's an Amiga emulator that's in a cute little case. It's plug and play. And really, this is going to make life, you know, as simple as using a, a Mega Drive or a Super Nintendo Mini. So really, it is a, a small, consoleized plug-and-play Amiga, which I think, you know, if you haven't got a background with the platform, which is a complaint I've seen today, people are like, well, can it boot Workbench? Can I, you know, you can plug a keyboard in. So, I mean, it probably could, but it's not aimed at that market. You know, this yeah. is aimed at people that are going to see it in game or HMV and yeah, people that maybe owned one 30 years ago or people like Joe that have probably heard a lot about the Amiga, you know, probably through us rattling on about it. And actually, maybe want to experience that world. And you know, admittedly, it is quite pricey for for these kind of systems. But at 120 pounds, I think it is still affordable for people that want to get hold of it and experience and it. Also, for young people, like you know, I've seen a lot of people saying this is ideal for me to give to the kids and have the kids like they don't want them on their original hardware. Have the kids have this machine and they could spill Coca Cola all over it. And so you know, and, uh, my nephew would be like, "Can it play Fortnite? Oh, it's rubbish." <laughs> <laughs> so have we got a release date on this then it just says 2022 yeah um but that's all it says which isn't far away now 2022 actually yeah it's 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 hard it's kind of like is that in, is, is it going to be in four or five months time or is it in a year's time do you know what i mean yeah um but yeah it just says 2022 at the moment but we've got like i say 12 games so alien breed 3d another world um all terrain racing battle chess is that cadaver kickoff to pinball dreams and then simon the sorcerer Speedball uh, 2, Chaos Engine, Worms Director's Cut and Zool on there. They're big games. I was going to say, I'm pretty sure they're... I mean, I'm like you say, I'm not a big Amiga boy. So but it's I'm, a lot of I'm the sure Team 17. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, I'm sure games. they're pretty big games. And you know what? I, I'm just happy that something's come out because if, if, if something hadn't have come out, it probably would have just been lost in the legacy of time. And, you know, it's nice to see the Amiga up there with the other mini consoles and it, and it, it brings a new audience to it as well. Yeah, it's been a long time coming, something like this, I think, you know, just uh, even though you said before, you know, it's not aimed at me and Ravi, don't know about you, Ravi, I'm going to buy one of these. I just want one in the living room just to play yeah, Mega Games in there. These, on my I'm going to buy a Mega 65 as well. <laughs> just uh, have, have the bases. two systems, yeah. But this will be the drunk one. This will be the one that I spill all my beer all over. <laughs> So hopefully we're going to get um, some of the guys from the, the team on for a chat um, before launch and um, we'll keep you up to date on that as we hear more. Now, of course, we do love our consoles. Um, and this is a game, actually, I know this is quite a famous game on the PC back in the day. Um, I played this mostly on the Atari Lynx, quite randomly. This is a Chips Challenge that now is finally landing. This article here on Nintendo Life says makes its console debut, but it was on the Atari Lynx. Um, on I was, the SNES and the Mega Drive. I was going to say, it actually, according to the, it's funny because according to the same article, it was actually on the Atari Lynx first anyway. Right, it was an original Atari Lynx game. It was originally an original Atari Lynx game. Yeah, it was actually uh, Chuck Somerville, who we've had on the podcast before, and he was the designer and programmer of Chips Challenge, and it's kind of a fun little tile game, and you're right, it was originally on the Atari Lynx. It's it's quite a simple, like, basic game, but it's never really had this. I was about to say, you say that. I, I get stuck on it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah, a game. Me. But, uh, I mean, graphically. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was quite simple, but it's never... It's It's got a cult following. And, uh, you know, there was Chip Challenge 2 as well. And uh, 
it's it's never really gone onto the kind of mainstream consoles but now there's been a port and uh these ports are like official ones you can actually buy them and Mm -hmm. i find this really interesting about the ports they've done two versions for each console so they've done a pal version and an ntsc version for the snes and the uh, mega drive and genesis of course so you can actually choose your region version and get a boxed uh with instruction booklet um copy of the game and actually run that on it you actually stole my information because that was mostly all i knew about it as well (laughs) (laughs) Um, but yeah i I love that that you can get like the mega drive or the genesis version and then the actual game cartridge is the nts the you know the american ntsc one or the pow english one which you know british one which i I really really love because so many companies you know like zavi who we've got in the uk keep putting all these snes games out and they're the ntsc ones and it's like you're a uk company and they don't work in the uk like why are you doing this whereas these guys this is coming from the retro retro room games are putting this out they've done their research they know you know what shape the bloody cartridges need to be and stuff which i really really like um they're up for pre-order now um I'm on the page at the moment. We've not got any sort of like um, time scale of when we will get them, unfortunately. Um, but it does look really, really cool. And I really like the artwork that they've got for the game as well. I, I think you're right as well, though, Joe, the fact that, you know, they've actually tailored this for different markets. So I'm looking here. I mean, you know, you've got the two massively different designs of the cartridges mm. on the Super Nintendo. Those North American ones, like, I didn't like the look of the North American Super Nintendo anyway. Really boxy design, isn't it? And the carts. Yeah look like that as well you know they look a lot better in the PAL regions yeah absolutely and like and like I've just said it but I was sick of seeing these companies put them out for UK release and then being like oh yeah they work on the SNES as well like I I remember specifically somebody commenting on it and saying well it was actually a friend of mine commenting on Zavi's post about the Mega Man release like so you're saying this works on a UK uh, Super Nintendo and they commented back like yeah it'll work perfectly fine it's like won't even fit it's not even, you know what i mean it's got it's got this big side on it so i'm I'm really glad the retro room have you know have done this catered to our needs it does seem to be a week of um reboots and remasters a game that's coming to xbox one sam and max save the world now this remaster was available for um switch and pc already yeah yeah it's kind of passed me by this one and i think uh sam and max was such a huge title back then that you know it's 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 worth talking about uh do you remember the sam and max games at all i do but i've never played them people are probably going to be screaming at me now like what do you mean i've never played sam and max i i i've never played them maybe this is an excuse to play them but do they start out as 2d games and then they moved into like the 3d realm no, it's like so, a point-and-click game, wasn't it? it was really? Yeah, game, so yeah. it's like Day of the Tentacle or okay, around yeah. that kind of period when they had like these animated kind of point-and-click adventures. Yeah, and, yeah. and this was actually done by uh, LucasArts Games, so it was like their kind of attempt to get into that genre. And uh, it was it was one of the first games to include a full-speech soundtrack and music as well. And it was it was it was pure comedy. Like it, it kind of had that. Um, blues brothers or kind of yeah two detective kind of vibes and it was really adult as well they had to actually tone it back originally because it was quite an adult game and uh you might remember some of the mini games that it had in there so it had a -a whack-a-mole um which had like live rats and you had to kind of uh hit the live rats and stuff like that and uh it had a really good kind of detective uh, plot they were both um in a detective agency and, yeah uh, i remember when that came out it was like full throttle 
was another title that was a, a, a kind of full speech uh, adventure. And this is when CD-ROM really kind of kicked off on the PC. Mm. So it's it's good to see it starting to hit the other consoles and especially a redone version because these are also legendary cult characters. See, I haven't played this. Again, I've got a Switch, you know, and a PC, obviously. Um, and I wasn't even aware of this. So this is something that kind of gone under my radar. I didn't play the originals back in the day. Um, but again, Dave the Tentacle, I didn't really play that back in the day, but I've bought the remastered version of that um, in the last few months and been really enjoying it. So if it's anything, you know, up to that kind of standard, they tend to do a really good job of um, bringing these old LucasArts it, adventure it, it games. Was, it was kind of like Dave the Tentacle, but it had FMV cutscenes between it of them, like doing adventures and certain stuff. Like I'm looking at the demo at the moment, uh, well, the trailer of it, and there's a certain scene that really brings back the nostalgia for me, which is when they're both in a presidential kind of Cadillac and they're jumping across the sky. That was one of the big FMV kind of things that uh, popped up. And, and mm. you know, it had all the interactive elements and they seem to have got the characters really nicely done in this as well. And uh, like you said, it's available for the Switch and, and previous consoles as well. But uh, it looks like a really good remaster. Hopefully some of our listeners can let us know um, what this is like and if they've enjoyed the uh, Summer Max remake. Now, like I said, it does seem to be the week where every story pretty much is an old game from the past is back again. This one is another one that's been making the headlines everywhere. And kind of, you know, people that were interested in the Amiga Mini announcement might be interested in this one. Zool is coming back. Now, there might be some people listening that are like, what are you talking about? Ghostbusters. Nothing to do with <laughs> Ghostbusters. <laughs> this was kind of what was bigged up back in the day, even though it came out on different platforms. It was described by many of the magazines and in the advertising back in around 92, 93 as the Amiga's answer to Sonic the Hedgehog. I would agree, potentially agree with that. So my experience with Zool um, is only briefly playing the um, the Master System version at a friend's house. And I mm. remember thinking like, this is like, so- this is like Sonic, but better. <laughs> like, I mean, I was naive. I was like five or six years old. But it'd be nice to get my hands on this again and play it again. And, and, I, and I'm a sucker for playing like old remastered games with achievements and stuff like Xbox and PlayStation. Uh, I enjoyed it. I thought it was very hype train back in the day. So it was like, Zool is better than Sonic. And they really pushed it, pushed it hard. And uh, I, I There was one of the Amiga magazines that actually had a cover of Zool punching Sonic the Hedgehog out. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Beating him up. Poor Sonic. Poor Sonic. Uh, what I want to know is, it does, does, does this uh, remaster, you know, sponsored by Chubba Chumps? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you did actually, if you bought the Amiga version back in the day, um, you did get a lolly, a lollipop, a, a Chubba Chumps lolly in the box. Nice. Which um, people buy them on eBay still with them in there. I wouldn't suggest eating one <laughs> from 30 years ago if you buy one of these off eBay Well, today. amazingly, I did a, an article on Zool and the history of um, uh, sponsorship with sweets, mm. and originally they'd put it on Games Master, and they'd put like all the Games Master logos in the background of the level. And I think oh, wow. one of the marketers was like, "Oh, that's a good idea." <laughs> no, no, <laughs> Chopper Chops were looking for sponsors, so uh, they actually put that in. And crazily, uh, Chopper Chops' original logo was done by Salvador Dali as well, which is just a bit. Oh, really? Mad. I did know yeah. that. I, I actually saw that in this week in loads of articles because, for some reason. I, I wonder if it's because of Zool related to Zool. Maybe now <laughs> it could be. So, um, so. I'm reading the article. We've not got much word on what consoles and stuff it's coming to. So uh, so far, all I can see is it's coming to Steam for sure. But it doesn't seem to be anything about Xbox or PlayStation. 
which is a little bit worrying because I was just saying about how much I love playing these games on those consoles. Well, I mean, the original game, even though all the articles are calling it, you know, the, the 90s Amiga game, which is interesting because I, I've seen a lot of this on the Facebook groups. And, you know, you and I, Joe, have talked about this on the show quite a bit, how kind of retroactively people's opinions of games tend to change. Mm. Because I remember when Zool came out, um, even though, you know, as Ravi said then, it wasn't really a Sonic the Hedgehog beta. But, you know, being an Amiga user back then with some, before we got a Mega Drive, some serious Sonic the Hedgehog envy, Mm. it was like the closest thing, you know. It was like a mascot that we can have. And uh, I remember all my mates loved it. And the magazines, you know, Amiga format gave it, I think, 95%. All the mags got behind it. But on the forums, I've seen a lot of people saying, oh, I never liked it, you know, hating on it recently. And it kind of reminds me of... You know, we've talked about um, Altered Beasts, for example, mm. that, you know, back in there, I remember everyone loved that game. Now, all of a sudden, 30 years on, it it tends to be regarded as a bad game. Yeah. That kind of, that, that reputation over the 30 years has kind of changed. And we've talked about other examples of this, you know. I've, I've often wondered if it's because of certain YouTubers who might do reviews and hate on it, then all of a sudden people are like, oh, yeah, actually, it wasn't that good back in the day. But it is interesting how opinions seem to have changed quite a bit in, you know, just the Facebook groups I'm on in particular. And it was also not just... For the Amiga, it, it came out on the Amiga, no. but also it's on the Archimedes, the ST, MS DOS, Game Boy, Game Gear, Master yeah. System, Genesis. The SNES, SNES version yeah. was the best, actually. The SNES version is probably the best version of Zool if you want to play, you know, up until now. But I, I think there is definitely a lot of nostalgia for it. And this new version, so this is, um, it's coming to Steam on uh, next week, August the 18th, developed by Sumo Digital Academy. And there's, and there's a group of students that have been involved in this as well. Um, this is called Zool Redimensioned. Now, there is actually a trailer that you can look at, and they've actually put quite a bit of extra stuff in here as well. There's going to be, um, you know, 28 platforming challenges. have completely redesigned some of the boss fights in there, the new secrets, challenges, extras to find as well. Um, achievements are in there, Joe. You'll be pleased to know. <laughs> but what is actually good, if you look at this trailer, the original Zool had quite a narrow playfield but they've actually zoomed it out quite a bit so you can see more of what's going on mm. on screen which i think makes the game yeah. probably easier to play actually yeah I, I i've just been watching the trailer i've watched it a couple of times now and i couldn't put my finger on what what looked different about it and mm. i was like oh he looks really small the sprite looks really small but it isn't that he looks really small like you say it's they've zoomed it out so you can see a lot more of what's going on which i think does make it look a little bit nicer in some ways mm. as well as well as making the playing field easier to see what you're doing yeah, and also the levels are the levels are looking like the old traditional levels as well. Like it hasn't got the chupa chups in there, but it's still got the sweetie kind of world, and then it's mm. got the like Meccano world and the one with cassettes and all of that. So it's it's definitely nostalgic on that that kind of level. And the music's in there as well. That was a big part of the original game. Um, on the Amiga, they had to pick between music or sound effects. On the, this has got them both. So, you know, sound <laughs> Whoa, effects over the music. Progress. One thing I keep seeing though that is annoying me all over again like it did in 1992, Zool is not an ant. He's a Everywhere. The ninja ant is back. He's not, he's an, I think he's a ninja from the nth dimension. I thought it was a gremlin. I always thought it was a ninja gremlin. I don't know. I could... Well, gremlin graphics did make the original oh, okay. game, so that would make Maybe sense, I guess. Maybe that's where the confusion has come from. But funny enough, I've not seen anything about him being an ant. <laughs> did, didn't he have this like article. A, a female counterpart called Zooks as well at one point? Zoos, I think her name was in the Zoos. sequel, yeah. Dan, Dan's first love. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Zool 2 was probably my favourite of the games, so I'm hoping, you know, if this one is a success, they might actually remaster the second game as well. 
that actually you know, is really good on the Atari Jaguar. A lot of Jag fans regard that as like one of the best platformers on the system. Uh, but again, it's kind of like um, a lot of people are saying, what's going to be next? A Cool Spot remaster? Which I'd be up for that. I was going to say, bring it on. <laughs> yeah. The more the merrier. You know, it's always awesome to have these franchises from the past. Rise of the robots. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? I think there was an attempt, and there is some um, YouTube footage of this. If you look, there was going to be a Zool reboot um, in around, I think it's like 2000, 2001. And there are like some um, intro animations and i've got a feeling they're going to try and make it like you know like everything was in like kind of a 3d platformer but it kind of looked a bit like it was going to be like bubsy 3d or something okay. so i think they might <laughs> change it to something else in the end but yeah so it, it there's been attempts to kind of remaster it in the past but um yeah it's never actually happened we, we until need a now. Zool fps that would be good <laughs> Yeah, so um, I, I'm glad he's back anyway. So uh, hopefully the second game will get a remaster as well. And if you want to check it out, it'll be released on Steam uh, next week. So we'll put a link to that in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now we're recording the show pretty late at night. Another late one, nearly 10pm. I think it's about time maybe to crack a beer. What do you think, boys? Oh yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely. Celebrate another good episode of the Retro Hour. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're only halfway through, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like your confidence. Um, well, this is our sponsor, our incredible friends at Beer 52, one of our favourite sponsors, who are back on board this week. Now, um, what about this? We all know the weather's been warm around the world recently. Maybe we've been working a bit too hard. What about you just want to chill out and maybe have a nice beer? Well, as a listener to this podcast, you can get a case of craft beer from the USA on us. Now, this is our friends at Beer 52. Now, if you're based in the UK, have a look at this website, beer52.com slash retro. That is beer 52.com slash retro. All you need to do is cover the £5.95 postage and they will deliver eight delicious craft beers direct to your door. It is that simple. Now, Beer 52 are the world's most popular craft beer discovery club and they're heading stateside once again and you can join them for a beery adventure through the windy city of Chicago and sample the finest craft beer from the coolest Chicago breweries from Bridgeport to Beverly, all for the price of postage. Now, we do love Beer 52. I mean, I've got one of their boxes here. Joe always dives in for the snack straight away. I always do that straight away. <laughs> Eat, st- stuff my face with the snack and then crack open a cold beer. They've actually given me two snacks in here, so I've got some baked pretzels. Oh, very nice. Um, and some uh, or roasted chickpeas as well, sea salt and vinegar. Uh, then in the box you get your eight beers as well that are in you know beautiful cans, all different designs in them as well. Um, and really, the thing about Beer 52 is it encourages you to try things that maybe you wouldn't normally buy in the supermarket. Mm. So they're experts, and they're on a mission to find the best beer anywhere on the planet. And each month, they visit a different place. So it can be, you know, small batch breweries from around the world, which is another reason that we love them, because they support the little guys, yeah. which, which is important, I like think. Like my dad got a case the other day, and I just dived in there, and we were, we were literally mm. fighting over the beers. I was like, oh, I love this one. And he's <laughs> like, you're not going to take that one. <laughs> that one's mine. So, you know, there's a really nice selection, and you can go for, like, uh, mixed beers as well. So you can have a selection of light or dark, or you can just go for light beers, which are actually vegan friendly as well, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, except I know you're more of a light beer kind of guy. Oh, yeah, like there was some Pilsner stuff, in there and I was getting mad for it. You know? 
So um, why don't you check them out? Get your free case of beer, and also you will get the snack in there as well. And also you will get their award-winning beer magazine, Ferment, and you get the snacks to wash the beer down too. There's no minimum commitment. You can just take the free case if you want, try the beers out over the weekend, see what you think. If it's not for you, you can pause or cancel at any time. So claim your free case of beer on us right now. Head to beer52.com slash retro, beer52.com slash retro, and a big thank you to our amazing friends at Beer52 for their support of the Retro Hour podcast. Now, next weekend, it's going to be patrons' hangout time again. Oh, I, was yes. like, what? I was like, what's coming up next weekend then? <laughs> you were, Only the best weekend of the month, Joe. <laughs> I did get scared, Ben. But no, it's our lovely patrons' hangout, luckily. <laughs> so, for someone who may not have joined us on a patrons' hangout before, it might be thinking, oh, I hear these guys talking about it. You know, why, why would you suggest they come and join us then? Why should they spend a Sunday evening with us, guys? Well, first of all, they get to hang out with us, guys, for a couple of hours. You know, what's better than that on a Sunday evening? <laughs> no, but jokes aside, it is cool. It is cool just to kind of come and have a hangout. The main thing we kind of do is geek out about each other's retro games rooms and what we've bought recently. Sometimes spend a little bit of money. Um, but we end up talking a lot just about nostalgic tech as well. Like we talk about mobile phones. We're talking about laser discs the other week. We end up talking a lot of time ninja about movies, ninja movies, <laughs> horror films. We just hang out, don't we? Which is really cool. And it really helped over like 2020 and this year as well. Um, and we, you don't, people don't have to get involved. Some people just come on and they just listen, you know, sit with the camera off and stuff like that. Um, and it but, becomes the show and tell as well, doesn't it? A bit? Yeah, it's 100%. Like, it's like, look, look, class, this is what I've bought in today. <laughs> like, <laughs> you see people's setups and kind of new stuff that they've bought or want to discuss. We've even had, you know, a, a golden Games Master joystick on there. We have, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's a really fun time. And I think in terms of, you know, if you want support on things or you want, you know, you've got a question about something, they're a really knowledgeable bunch. I mean, the guys on on that Hangouts know way more than we do about retro systems in general. So if I've got any questions or whatever, you know, they're really good. Like, oh, you should buy this add-on for it. And, you know, it's just, it's a a bit like a virtual users group. Yeah, yeah. So we're all going to be getting together again uh, next weekend on Sunday, the 22nd of August at 8pm UK time. All patrons are welcome to join us for it. So if you'd like to come along, give us a little back on Patreon. I mean, you can do it for the cost of a cup of coffee once a month um, and you will get the invite link in there as well. Not the only thing you get for being a patron, though, are gold supporters uh, and above. They can check out exclusive patrons only podcasts. And we're actually going to be recording the next episode of that in the next week as well. Uh, this is the Retro Hour After Hours, where we kind of do, you know, entire episodes about specific consoles. We talk a bit about our memories. And also we do a thing called the Retro Years, which is a an hour and a half, maybe two hours on games, tech, consoles from a specific year. And we're going to be focusing on the year 2002, which last week, actually, after we finished recording, we were like, did much happen in 2002? Then we spent about 20 minutes going through all the things that happened in 2002. There was quite a lot of good games. There was a lot of good games. There wasn't many consoles. They're all out by then. They're all out by then. You know, we're kind of in the middle of that generation, but there was some, certainly some good games and some good films for us to talk about as well. And also it's always funny talking about where we were in life as well. I I was trying to tell you guys that Coldplay were cool at one point and you just didn't believe me. I'm going to have to do the convincer on that. (laughs) Yeah, Ravi was at Glastonbury watching Coldplay. Um, you should admit that, Randy. <laughs> oh, it was great. <laughs> I was with 270,000 people, so uh, they, they were all fools. Nice. <laughs> you weren't convincing me, Joe. Uh, but, it, you know, it was, apart from Coldplay, a very good year 2002, so we're going to be talking all about that in the Retro Hour After Hours podcast. If you're a patron, you get the normal show early, you get it ad-free as well. 
So really, you're backing us on Patreon, though, just to ensure that we can keep bringing this show out for you every single week. All our costs are covered. We don't have to pay for it all, so it really helps us out. And for doing that, you will get a mention in the most prestigious high score table in the world of retro gaming, the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, a big thank you to Lee Gregory. Ludwig Signal. Richard Pickles. Simon Buckner. And Peter Savage. Who all made donations into the running of the show. We hugely appreciate that. And if you'd like to do the same, you'll find it all on our website at theretrohour.com. Right then, next, we're going to be joined by the incredible Chris Barnett, who's the host of the awesome Explaining Computers on YouTube for a bit of a retrospective and a look back, such a nostalgic chat. Chris is next on the Retro Hour podcast. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. You're listening to the Retro Owl Podcast, and it is time for our favourite part of the show where we welcome on a very special guest. And today, we're going to be talking to someone who's done so much in the world of computers over the last couple of decades. He's an author, he was a computer science teacher as well, a futurologist, and of course, the host of one of our favourite YouTube channels, the fabulous Explaining Computers. Let's welcome to the show, Chris Barnett. Hello, Chris. Hello, it's great to be on the show. Fantastic to have you joining us. Now, I did mention then you are a futurologist, so I think it is going to be quite interesting to kind of spin that on its head a little bit and actually talk about the past with you for a change. Yes, absolutely. I'm spread across so many areas of future stuff, computing stuff, but... um but I've always, well, I've been into, into computers for a great many decades, as you said, so there's a lot of stuff we can go back to. Well, what interested you um, when you were a kid then? Were you like this, uh, you know, the kid that took apart the video recorder or the, the hi-fi to see how it worked and put it back together? And what kind of got you into electronics? Were, were you like inquisitive in that regard? Uh, yes, I think very much. I mean, the, the video recorder wasn't around then, sadly, but um, right. I took a lot of um, radios apart and that type of thing and... Um, took out components and built little oscillators and that type of stuff. And in fact, I once remember my, my father gave me a calculator that stopped working. And these are the days when calculators were quite, you know, big and expensive things. He had it for work. And I managed to take it apart and, and mend it. And uh, he took it back again at that point, which was hardly surprising. So it's, um, I always found it interesting to see what was going on inside devices. And I guess that followed through into my interest in technology today. Did you uh, have like a little electronics kit at all or any any of these kind of uh, educational kits that were built? I do remember having one of the, I think it was the Tandy kits, which have a little springs for the connectors to, to various parts of it. So It's like 50, 50 in one. Uh, that's right. That's exactly it, yes. Yeah. And they had a sort of little wooden surround to the edge of them and you could wire up a transistor and a photocell and things like that. I started with one of those, but then I, I moved on to set of bits of old radios or other any, any old electronics I could find, and um, you know would take the transistors out, the resistors out, and, and whatever, and build bits like that. And I also remember getting components from the the handy stores. You know, would go in and buy you know a couple of LEDs or something, which was really exciting yeah. at the time to uh, build something that made an LED flash, which probably wouldn't impress people today, but at the time it was really you felt you were into something really modern. So what was your earliest computer memory then? 
I think my, my very earliest was uh, a book called, I think, something like the Ladybird Book of Computing, which I had when I was very young. I must have been sort of five or six. And this was all about things like core storage and that type of stuff. And, and um, I don't know why that stuck and, and really sort of resonated with me, but it did. So there was a, this Ladybird book that had, you know, pictures of people looking at computers and say what these things were. And then the first time I actually saw a computer actually running in front of me, as it were, was at school. I think it was a Commodore PET. And the, the teacher had just got this, and they were very interested in it, far more interested than those of us watching him. And he was showing how he could put in the sides of a triangle and it would draw it and work out the area. We were going, well, we can do it faster than this machine takes to work it out. you know. But So that was <laughs> the first time I saw one running. I said, but that the ones that really stuck with me were, I think, the Tandy uh, TRS-80s, which um, there was one in our local library. And you, you could go and have a, have, a, have a look at that. And you, know, you didn't really know what to do with it because you could book it for four, five minutes or something, but you couldn't do much in that time. Uh, but they also of course, sat in the Tandy stores and the windows as these wonderful devices. So that's, those are the machines that got me aware of computers that could be part of our, our world as opposed to on the pages of a book somewhere. And then the first computer that really I got into computing with was, like many people, was, was a ZX81 back in 1981 uh, my parents got me what i and that really kicked off the whole thing for me you know writing programs first in basic and in machine code and uh, everything followed from there but what kind of things were you doing on the zx81 and how how were you learning to program that machine i suppose there, there was a very good manual with it because that, those were back in the days when uh, if you bought a computer you were expected to program it because there wasn't that much software around so it had a very good uh, guide to the basic system and uh, I got into machine code from various bits of articles here and there and eventually got the, the Rodney Zacks book on programming the Z80 and taught myself to program in December. Effectively, I used to poke values into the um, particular locations in memory on, on Z81. You had the peek and poke commands, want to push the, a value to a memory location, want to get it back again. And so you could write bits of basic that allowed you to put in machine code. And I slowly learned how to use the registers and, and to, to write First of all, games. I remember writing Pac-Man in, um, or a version of sort of Pac-Man on the ZX81 in machine code. I later wrote um, a word processor for the ZX Spectrum. That was the first word processor I used is what I wrote. I remember having great fun figuring out first principles of word wrapping and this type of thing. So mm. it was, I suppose, driven by desire to be able to do particular things with graphics or with working with words and slowly working it out i think the young mind is always open to things isn't it the great thing about being young you just assume something must be possible and you just pursue it until you can do it and having the patience to actually do it on that keyboard on the zx81 as well <laughs> oh yes indeed <laughs> yes and and often do it multiple times of course because you could only save by saving onto cassette tape and it sometimes didn't work and you had no real way of knowing if it wasn't going to work until you turned the thing off and had a go and gone oh dear so a lot of it had to be written down on paper. You know, I used to write all my assembler on, on paper, first of all in instructions and in the actual code, and then put it into the machine and frequently did it multiple times. And to edit and to put in the machine code on the ZX81, you had to enter the right values from the keyboard as, as characters. So you sometimes had to do all sorts of shift combinations to get the right graphics character. It represented a certain um, value between, you know, 0 and 255. It was a, it was a real labour of love. How how important do you think Sinclair was kind of helping kickstart the computer industry in the country, especially like the price point and the accessibility of them? Oh, I, I think it was extremely important. I mean, the, the other machines we had around 
around the Sinclair time or just after things like the BBC Micro were far more expensive, as, as you imply. They were much more machines for schools and for people who could afford, you know, very expensive machines. Whereas the ZX81 was suddenly a machine that a lot of people could afford to own. And it changed, you know, people's perception of computers. There were some, you know, some people using to play games and things, but by and large, people got them to learn about a computer. I think a lot of people had a sort of light bulb moment with a, this is a technology that could really start to take off and change how we do things. I always thought it was a great shame that Sinclair didn't get adopted in schools. You know, that the BBC uh, Micro was heavily backed by the BBC and you can have great debates about whether that was a good idea in terms of the use of BBC funds to fund a computer competing against another um, UK company. Because the, mm. the Sinclair QL, which was out around the same time as the uh, BBC Micro, was a much better machine. It was, ne- it was a less robust machine physically, and that's where the, the BBC Micro really took off. It had a very solid keyboard and a case that was virtually bomb-proof, so it was safe to put it in schools and it would survive. But the Sinclair hardware, when he moved on to the 68000 and the QL, that was a fantastic machine, way ahead of its time, and it, it's a shame it didn't get a lot more support. Yeah, I think those micro drives wouldn't have survived very long in schools. <laughs> no, they, they, they weren't a technology for that, were they? But um, mm. Although I do remember using eventually a three-and-a-half-inch hard drive on a, on a, um, a three-and-a-half-inch floppy disk on, on a QL, uh, oh. although admittedly the interface that stuck out then to make it happen wouldn't have survived long in schools either. So, it's, uh, I think you're right, though, because it always seemed like, um, you know, the BBC Micros were the computers in schools, but they, were, they weren't affordable for the home user. So I didn't know anyone that actually had one at home. You'd always no. have like a, a Commodore or a Sinclair. So there was some disconnect there that you weren't learning the machine at home as well. Yes, absolutely the case. It, it, was, a, it was like a sort of two worlds of microcomputing, wasn't it? The sort of mm. the, the BBC world and the world you could see on the television, because of course, whenever you saw a micro on the television on the BBC, it was always a BBC micro. I remember they even had them built into the console of the TARDIS for a while because it was, you know, the, the BBC yeah. official machine. And yet people were using all the other ones around. So it was it was a strange situation. Well, what's kind of a, um, just a brief kind of timeline of your machines after the ZX81, the Spectrum, up until like maybe the, you know, the, the early 90s, what kind of machines did you go through? Um, I think I went, as I've implied, from ZX81 to Spectrum and then a QL came in and... After that, my next machine was a Amiga 500, I think, pretty certain. Nice. Um, I then had an Atari ST for various reasons. I sold the Amiga and I was I, I started off a PhD I never finished and I needed a machine I could more reliably work process on and that became the Atari. And then I went to an Amiga, I think 500 plus. So I went back pretty quickly when I could afford to do that. And then after that, there was an Amiga um, 1200. With, and I, I had a hard drive on, on the a, a, A500 Plus as well. So I, I was quite heavily into Amiga for a long while. And uh, and then eventually I had to – I, I recognised I couldn't continue to go with Amiga because obviously the, the world of Amiga was not progressing and all the problems they had selling the things, all the different owners. And so I built my first PC in about 96, I think, something like that, with one of the um, – when you bought a – I think a case of the motherboard came together and I added the processor and the RAM and everything else. And then so therefore since then I've been PC based, but always PC I put together myself based. But uh, having said that, the other part of my computer ownership has always been portables or for a long time it's been portables. So I remember having a, an Atari portfolio. Oh, wow. Which I thought was a brilliant machine running the Atari, so a very close version to DOS. And I used that for 
uh, research purposes for writing notes and things for for years and years. You know, it was wasn't a brilliant keyboard, but it worked. It stored data on a little a card, but you had to have a battery in, so it was it was RAM. It stored in it with with a battery rather than ROM, so you had to make sure your battery didn't go in your card, or if it did, you had to have it plugged into the device with the AA cells in to keep it going. So I, I like the Atari portfolio, and then I, I remember I had um, Scion Scion Seven Scion Seven. Yeah. That was a lovely machine as well for taking notes. And so that also was for me a machine I kept for many years. It's strange. I still have a lot stronger feelings for the older PC than for anything I've got today. You know, today it comes and goes and gets taken apart and put back together. And whereas the older hardware is something I have an emotional attachment to still because it was it was things you just couldn't do. You know, the idea of the entire portfolio, you could walk around with something in your pocket or a large pocket, which had a reasonable text editor word processor and a spreadsheet on it. And it ran on three AA batteries, you know, which is better than the computers do today. So, um, and I remember seeing John Connor hacking a, an ATM in Terminator Two with one of those. Absolutely, as well, and they, <laughs> and well, they also stuck around. You know, th- those were devices that I think they were sold for about seven or eight years, and they were in use much lo- longer than that. Whereas today, models come and go, you know, so quickly, don't they? It's, um, and I think that's one of the other reasons we remember these older machines because they did have longevity well we absolutely love amiga and uh one one of the kind of functions of amiga was video editing did you have any like background in making videos and stuff when you were younger uh i did yes well, well i used to be uh, i used to make super 8 films i actually um was a runner up on the bbc screencast competition in 1983 so i had actually made films and you know started to build up a, an interest in that and that's really what i wanted to do as a career for, for a long time so when I got to the Amiga, I was already uh, aware of doing sort of film stuff. And in fact, the first work I did on an Amiga, which was linked to that, is that I worked as an animator for the BBC from 88 to 93, freelance, working on the Heartbeat show, doing, doing animations for Tony Hart. And I did some of that work by producing CAD on the Amiga and then printing it out on a dot matrix printer and then tracing it onto cell to do various bits of 3D animation. Um, which was, you know, it was, it was cartoon 3D animation, but it was produced from, from the Amiga. Uh, and uh, I'll never forget sitting on the, the editing machine, the Steinbeck in Television Centre with the producer of that show, and he was looking at this one part of the, the cartoon. He went, how on earth did you make that rocket, you know, move around in 3D like that? And it was on, <laughs> it was done on an Amiga. Like, what? You know, so um, my first use of computer graphics was actually done via dot matrix printer and paint, paint and, and, and ink on, onto cell. But I was always aware that the Amiga had enormous potential there. And I did make quite a bit of video work on that. I did various videos about um, educational things. I remember doing a video on presentation techniques where all the titles were done on an Amiga and some, again, some 3D graphics. So that's, that's why I was so unhappy to leave the Amiga because I, I knew it had such potential, but I could also see it, was gonna, it wasn't going to continue as it could do in terms of that. I, look, I looked at Mac and eventually it was like, I'll go PC. I ended up with something called a DC30 on a, on, a, on a PC to do video editing. So I was doing video editing on a PC, I think, in 1997, which was quite early, but sadly not on the Amiga. I think as well because the Amiga could output PAL, which really helped, you know, the, the TV standard. Absolutely, um, yes. Yeah. And, it, and it used a standard signal, and you could. it even had the interlace, non-interlace mode as part of the operating system, didn't you actually? To use an Amiga, you had to understand video systems you know, and, and the system that was coming out of it. And I remember having, um, I kind of what it was, it was, it was some sort of gen lock for the Amiga, which allowed you to go out to S-Video and 
and have get reasonable quality out of it. And it was, you know, you you could mix from a live video signal and the Amiga on on this little box that plugged in the back, which was streets of anything you could do on a PC at the time. Yeah, and I remember even, you know, the BBC and stuff back then, they were using, like, uh, was it like Quantel paint boxes and, like, really high-end, yeah. very expensive machines. And, you know, that you could do similar stuff with your Amiga 500 at home. I know. Th- things like Photon Paint on the Amiga and, and yeah. obviously Deluxe Paint were extraordinary software for, for their time. Again, you, you often think about what would have happened if these platforms had actually caught on a bit more, wouldn't you? you know, and we hadn't gone the, the route of um, Intel and Apple. There, there was such potential mm. in these, and it was... It wasn't about the technology. I think it was more about the business and who made the right business decisions to keep them going as opposed to what was the best particular hardware at the time. Well, were you um, much of a gamer as well or were you really focused on productivity? I did play games. I, I was never massively as a gamer, but I, I met on the Amigas, I did play quite a lot of games. Um, one of the reasons I went from my first Amiga to an ST was at a time I had to start focusing on getting other stuff done. So it was I knew I wouldn't have as many games on the ST, which I didn't. But on the Amiga, I remember quite a few shoot 'em up games and things like that, which were, you know, I spent a lot of time on. And as, as I said a bit earlier, I did actually start writing games on the ZX81 and, and, and the Spectrum. Some of the first things I published were, were games on, on those in the, in the old Sinclair projects and Sinclair programs magazines. So I've always had an interest in games. And these days, the only thing that keeps me out of it is that my, my, my fingers and arthritis and my eyes don't really wish to get involved with that intensity of use i you know i have to do enough on computers outside of the games area but it's uh what can be done with games these days it's clearly amazing and i i do i still go back to i still sometimes play some of the old dos games because i do like the old dos games on the fire and emulator it is funny though you know when i revisit games that i used to love as a kid um i'm terrible at them now i don't know whether it's yes. like you said like the body's <laughs> slowing down or just we, we don't practice enough anymore or... yes it's strange isn't it how we but but the thing I find surprising when I look back to games from all the time is that they still they still hold up. I mean, clearly they don't look like today's games do, but the gameplay is just as good as it ever was, isn't it? And I think it's a good reminder that it's actually the functionality in the game and how it was put together and the ideas behind it matter just as much as the execution. Whereas I think in some games today, they're so obsessed with the graphics and the story and the money is so big, they lose some of the gameplay in that. Even like text adventures, you know, I can play them and just get completely lost in it, you know, because your imagination... Yes, over. yes, I remember it was, mm. and on the ZX81, it wasn't much text either, was it? You know, And they even had pictures mm. in, in the ZX81's graphics, which were hardly fantastic, but you went, oh, look at this, you know, there was a scene here. Um, <laughs> yes, amazing. Well, obviously, you know, a big thing about computers, especially today, is being online. Um, do you remember when you first got online and what kind of your, some, some of your earliest memories about being connected? I do. I mean, I first got online when I was working for uh, the University of Nottingham, and I remember our... Uh, IT guy, that, that fantastic guy called Steve Moore, he came in one day and said, oh, I've got this amazing piece of software called Mosaic and um, chuck it on the network and, of course, we were off onto the web. And there wasn't much on the web at that point, but you could tell immediately this was this was going to be something. And fairly soon after that, I got um, a modem, I think a 1440 modem for the Amiga. So I was first online at home via an Amiga. And I remember I used to have to have a run a telephone called around multiple rooms to get it to where you know, it needed to be, you know, every time I plugged it in because that's the time we, we didn't even think phones then were for talking on, weren't they? And suddenly they had another use. So I remember that. And I remember sometimes having to download files and you had to do multiple chunks, didn't you? And put them together with a piece of software at the end to yeah. download something large, like say a screen-sized image. You know, it, it was 
an extraordinary place. And one of the things that I, I was very lucky to get involved with was something called Brainstorms, which was uh, one of the first real sort of virtual communities on, uh, on, on the web, run by a guy called Howard Rheingold, who actually came up with the term virtual community back in, I think, 93. And I got involved in that because I wrote a book called Cyber Business in, in 95, which was all about this thing called cyberspace and people buying things online, which people thought was ridiculous at the time. But because I did that, Howard Reingold got in touch and said, oh, I'm starting up this new online community on, on the web for, for 200 selected people. And I remember spending a lot of time in that. And we we worked out how to make things work in terms of online interactions and learned a lot about um, that type of stuff. And at the time, a lot of companies were trying to build their own virtual communities and almost all of them failed because they tried to tell people what to talk about and it didn't work. And it became very clear very quickly. The great thing about online and, and, and the web and people interacting online was that people did what they wanted to and, and the conversations went where people took them. You know, it, it wasn't a constrained thing. So for a time, I think the many-to-many nature of the web was still trying to be a one-to-many with rules. You know, and even Microsoft felt felt victim to that you know with the old microsoft what do they call it microsoft's old, old world online but it, they weren't part of the of the internet for a while were they they were separate yeah the, the msn network that's the one the msn network yeah. and they they tried to be you know we will have our own bit of it and it's like you've missed the point guys it's it's the whole thing and um eventually we all learned that lesson that the you can't control many to many communications and, and i think we're still learning to to deal with that today well, you spoke fondly of Netscape in your recent retro applications video. And, yes. Uh, I get the impression that you kind of favoured that over Internet Explorer and quite a lot of us did. Yes. Um, <laughs> to a large you, extent, yes. Do you kind of think the story of Netscape was a, a pretty tragic one? And like, uh, are you amazed to see, you know, Mozilla today and uh, what's become of it? It is sad, isn't it? I think a lot of the early pioneers had very sort of their goals were altruistic. I don't understand what they were trying to do. And they ran up against Microsoft in particular, who were basically trying to turn this into the, the business opportunity. And it's almost like what we were talking about with Amiga like, you know, a few minutes ago. That again, there, they, the better hardware, the, the better mentality in some ways didn't, didn't, didn't win out. So it's good to see that there are still vestiges of Netscape around, you know, in different guises and in other applications. But, um, I do remember being quite sad when Netscape went because I remember doing all my early web work in terms of writing code and things. It was all done to use with Netscape as a browser. And I think at the time, a lot of us were sort of very anti-Microsoft because they'd had the MSN network and tried to make the network separate, you know, to um, the rest of the internet. So, yes, I get, it, I get it, the impression you have a similar view. Yeah, it was a nice, it was a nice um, browser and also st- like the Java support and stuff, you know, it, it, it seemed to be kind of destroyed overnight. And as, yeah. when that happened, stuff broke, basically. Yes. Uh, that's how I felt. It broke for a few years until it all really got fixed. But um, yeah, Netscape uh, was a really solid foundation for me when I when mm-hmm. I used it. Yeah. I think the fact it also had the um, the ability to write code in it as well at one point in time, which was you could never imagine Microsoft doing that. Microsoft wouldn't be here as a web browser to also write your own pages. It was like you're supposed to look at our pages. That's the whole point of it. <laughs> yeah, and I guess also the paid model um, yeah. uh, uh, for a browser kind of helped its decline. You know, uh, uh, the idea of charging someone for a browser nowadays is <laughs> yeah, you couldn't imagine crazy. it now no, yeah. it's, uh, well, well even for an operating system isn't it i mean it's interesting yeah. we're seeing you know that when, when there's 11 coming along again it's like no one's talking about we'll have to pay for it unless you you know put it on a new computer 
But um, in the days we're just talking about, you know, you bought your operating system, your programs, or you wrote them, isn't it? I suppose, I suppose that's the thing that's changed, isn't it? And I suppose Netscape was part of that world, wasn't it? The world where a lot of the, the content and the things that people used were created by users and shared by users. And that's yeah. what we've lost as computers have got more and more complicated, and that's more and more difficult to do. And I guess the people who 20 years ago and 30 years ago were actually writing software and, and contributing to computing that way are now the people probably making content these days as opposed to the code itself. There's obviously some people still doing code and open source and that, that's great, but there's far more people contributing content that other people access online. You know, kind of going back to, um, you know, learning programming, you know, obviously back in the early 80s, I know you've got a background in teaching computing, but back then there was the BBC Literacy Project in the early 80s yes. where, you know, the BBC Micro came out of. Uh, do you remember much about that then? And was that kind of, you know, in your school days still? And what did you think of that as an idea, you know, that the, the BBC were getting behind and the government essentially, you know, teaching computer literacy to kids? I, I remember it going on. I suppose I was sort of late teenager and that was really in so I was still in school um when it was going on but I was a few years above where it would have been aimed at if you see what I mean so and at the time I was you know heavily I was writing machine code on the TEDx81 so I wasn't really that interested in what BBC were doing with with, with bits of basics so uh, um you know and, and I knew a lot of people at least at school who were also doing similar stuff so we looked on at what's this BBC thing going on I've always been quite critical of what the BBC did because I think they they pushed it in the wrong direction. I mean, I, I taught computing in the university for what twenty five years, but, but more freelance after that as well. And I and I always tried to teach some first year groups the, the basics of spreadsheets and this type of thing. And noticed over time that computer familiarity increased greatly, greatly, and computer literacy didn't increase at all. You know, you had people who had these wonderful. O-levels and then GCSEs in computing, you knew nothing about how to use, spread, use a spreadsheet and write formulas because the BBC model and then the, the, the model in, in UK schools was very much about teaching, if you like, the wrong stuff. You know, It mm. wasn't focused on the stuff people needed. It was the stuff that came out of some of these projects. So uh, I, I would rather the BBC had stuck to the, the letters British Broadcasting Corporation and got on with the broadcasting rather than tried to, to get into areas that really weren't there, I think, their area at the time. In in the nineties as well, the school uh, the schools kind of changed their curriculum in IT, mm. and it and it was more focused on like Word, Excel, and business Very much. business yes. kind of stuff. Um, do you think that affected kids' tech literacy? But also, has it changed these days with stuff like the Raspberry Pi? And um, you know- I think it did. And, and the strange thing was that although the the school focus was very much in those packages, as you say. They still didn't teach anything in them. I used to have people sitting in front of me in universities who got three A's at A-level and said, oh, I know all about computing. Oh, I've done spreadsheets. And you'd show them a formula and they never used formulas because mm. what they did in these things in schools was largely how to change the font and make it look pretty and this sort of stuff. And we used to spend a lot of time getting people to unlearn very poor spreadsheet techniques or non-existent spreadsheet techniques so I think the British system was bizarre because it actually moved on from programming in the essence of computing, which was probably too deep, but to do package stuff, which wasn't taught very well. And actually people had, they knew about a computer. You know, I, I frequently used to sit with people in computer labs and you go, you saved that? Yes. Where have you saved it? Huh? Well, I pressed the save icon. And I said, well, you're sitting on a network. Do you know what drive you saved it to? Oh, uh, yeah. Have you printed it? Well, I printed it. Where? Well, I pressed the print icon. Do you know where you printed it? Which printer did you select? So... What people learned in schools was very, very limited. 
and it gave people, I think, false confidence. And I think that wasn't that was a real problem in, in the UK for a long time that people had things on their CV about computer literacy that weren't really computer literacy at all. It was familiarity. I think in recent years it has improved a bit, as you say. There has been a move away from doing just a package stuff. I'm still not sure to what extent it is useful to teach people about microcontrollers like the BBC Microbit now and the, uh, in schools. The Raspberry Pi, I think, is a better learning aid because it's more of a traditional computer you can learn things with. I guess it depends how mass market you go because the more technical you make computing education, the fewer people I think you really engage with it. And the ones you do engage, that's really good and you get some incredible results from it. But I think we still struggle to understand what computer literacy should mean for the majority. And I, I think that's tricky because we have companies like Microsoft trying to make things simple, you know, and trying to overlay things on all the levels of complexity. So you do just press the button and have no idea what happens behind it. So it's it's a very difficult challenge keeping up with computer literacy. I often feel that teaching people things like good mathematics is important. You know, if you if you understand maths, you can do anything with a computer really. And you understand logic and you you think a bit. And I think the other problem we have today is that across education, we, people are so used to doing everything instantly, they won't sit down and learn about stuff. You know, it's um, one of the things I fought against in, in the university in my final years there was the inclusion of Wi-Fi networks that would cover lecture theatres, so people could be online in the lecture theatre. And I always thought that was a very bad move to have people being on devices during a lecture, although some of the educationists thought it was wonderful, because it took people away from actually just focusing on a thing, the lecture for a period of time. I think and there's still- this. Uh, uh, I think there's this school where all the tech moguls send their children, and they're not allowed any kind of Wi-Fi access. That's, that's right. Or- and I think there was one university now. I think it's Cambridge. I'm not sure, but who actually now have started to put the uh, disruptors into lecture theatres rather than the the extra access points, so that once you're in the room, you can't go online. You know, and you have to focus on one thing. And that's not to say that technology is bad, but I think to to learn things like programming you have to be able to focus on something for a considerable period you know and some things in life are complicated and computing at any level of of complexity is complicated and you have to be able to be someone who can sit down okay i'll spend many hours learning about this learning about the principles of it rather than wanting an instant result and um that is an interesting thing to look at these as we're computing because so many people are interested in computing they don't want to put the time in to learn all the complexity of it you know it's very interesting. It's like the driving test. They have to kind of put in how to check your engine and how to change a wheel and stuff like that. Yes. Now, because you, you know, people just want to press go. <laughs> That's it. Press the accelerator. There we are. I'm off. And, um, and I think it, it is the, the weird tension isn't technology has given us access to so much information, but it's also made people lazy about the way they access information because you know you can find out something just by, if you forget to me, just look it up on Google, don't you? Whereas it used to be, back in the days when we were talking about with dedicated ones around that sort of stuff, if you want to know something and you know, and someone you knew didn't know it, then basically you had to go to a library and find something or look it up. You know, it was, it was work to find something and, and know something. And therefore we, we were a bit more precious about knowledge because it was something you had to put time into. Whereas these days you just forget, it doesn't matter because I could just look it up again tomorrow. And I think you made a really interesting point about um, distractions as well. I mean, I, I heard that, you know, George Martin, the writer of Game of Thrones, actually writes all his scripts on a uh, on WordPerfect on an old 386 laptop just because Twitter's not running in the background. There's not all these constant distractions that, you know, we have yes. today, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, I got onto email, I think, in the in sort of mid-90s, but I've never had email set 
to tell me when it arrives. It's always been the first thing I've done on the computer. I will never have mm. notifications coming up uh, on that basis because as a writer and as a filmmaker, I need to be able to focus on the job. I check my email all the time, you know, but I decide when to do it rather than the other way around. And um, I took my video editing offline about about 18 months ago now. So the machine I edit all my videos on is not connected to the internet quite deliberately. It's partially because it still runs Windows 7. But it has been a real benefit that but actually I have time of the day when I'm online and time of the day when I'm not online, you know, and I disappear yeah. from that world and can focus on something. And I think as a writer, and I, I've done lots of books, as you may know, that, that you couldn't really do that sort of work if you've constantly got things pipping up and telling, hello, I'm a tweet. And it's... You've got to be able to move between the two. And yet the culture today is we should all be connected all the time, constantly interruptible. It's a very strange world. And I think we will that will be to our detriment eventually. Yeah, that's why I'm into gardening as well, so I get no pop-ups. <laughs> yes. You could go out and be out there doing that. That's it. You know, it's funny, my little nephew, he's, um, he's eight years old, and I told him that, you know, computers weren't always connected to the internet. He's like, well, what did you do on them? Yes. He couldn't get his head around <laughs> it, yeah. <laughs> yes, it, it, that, that, it is amazing, isn't it, to think there was a generation now, but multiples who don't recognise computers could have been used as personal devices, isn't it? You know, we have interpersonal yeah. computers today, not PCs, really, but we used to have personal devices. That was it. You turned it on, it was you and the machine, that was it. Well, obviously, I mean, a big part of what you do is still teaching people about computers, you know, admittedly more online these days mm. with um, your very successful YouTube channel. Where did the idea of explaining computers come from? It came about because I'd done um, a couple of computing textbooks. And when you do a computing textbook, the big problem is it goes out of date very quickly. So after a couple of years, it's, you know, you have to keep changing it. And so I thought, Someone must have done an online computing textbook. And I was particularly thinking of my, my first year course in the university. And so I looked around and I couldn't find one. And I, and I started just typing in random web addresses and one was explaining computers and it didn't exist. So I thought I better register that. And so I, I registered the explainingcomputers.com and created a website on it, which was basically an online computing textbook. So it's not a blog. It still isn't a blog so to the extent that it has pages on hardware or software, or whatever. And those pages update. Well, they do when I find the time to do it. And that really kicked off, I think, around 2005, 2006, something like that. And at the time, YouTube was building up. And I'd done a few experiments on YouTube, but nothing yet really worked. And I thought, well, I'll try to do a bit of YouTube stuff to build some, generate some traffic for the website. And I did that. And very quickly, the YouTube channel took off. And the website sort of, it's still there, but it's, it's very much a second fiddle to the, to the website. So, so it started this idea to do an online computing textbook and to support it and then became from that uh, the, sh the channel it is today. So is it you on your own or do you have like a team around you? It is just me. Uh, it, it basically, it all originates in Google Docs. So I have a Google Doc, which is my video slate, which has all the ideas go in. And at the bottom of that document, it's full of vague ideas. And at the top, there are actual titles and dates of, of videos that'll get done. And then as a video progresses from an idea, it gets its own Google Doc, its own script. And script doesn't necessarily mean written out what all the words will be, but there are sometimes technical details in there, bits of code in there sometimes. So I get a document together, which is a semi-script and all the detail I need. And then I tend to shoot multiple ends and starts of videos in one sitting because it's easier just to set things up to do that. And then once I've done those, I will go and, and start shooting the middle of it. So recording the either 
me on a table with bits of hardware or recording from a computer, as, as I do with do looking at software, or sometimes a combination of the two, which makes it even more complicated because I'm normally recording a machine and filming at the same time and having to, to sync them together. And then once I've gone that, I go across to the editor. And by and large, I will be shooting and editing pretty much simultaneously so that it's very rare I will shoot all of the video and then go and edit it. And that's one of the reasons why I've never really thought about the model of going towards having someone editing because that implies you're shooting something and handing it over to edit. Whereas I will frequently shoot sections, and as you may know my videos, they're all done between intertitle sections, so the sections of two to ten minutes in the middle of each chunk. And I will get each chunk working before I move on, sometimes for practical reasons, because if you're building something, you don't want to keep taking it apart and putting it back together multiple times to make sure you've got the first bit right, as it were. So I will frequently shoot something and go back and reshoot a few words, reshoot a few syllables, often because I get things the wrong way around. So it's a, it's a very iterative process between shooting and editing. And then eventually I'll get to a point of cleaning up audio and doing all the final graphics and things. But it's, it is that iterative process. And also the thing I most probably enjoy is the editing. I mean, I, my background is as an animator, as, as I've talked about already. And so I'm, I very much think of, of film as of video as frames. And that's what I work with on the timeline. There just happen to be lots of them doing live action. So I'm, I'm always most comfortable when I've got something on the timeline. And I will normally have the video laid out with the intertitles and the start and the end, the bits of audio, and then just colours for different bits of what will eventually be final shots sitting in there. And then slowly we'll fill it up from going and shooting live action and, and, and recording from a video. So it's, uh, it is quite stressful doing it by, by myself at the moment because I'm, I'm doing a lot of content. You know, I'm doing these days towards a 20-minute video every week, 52 weeks a year. Yeah. I've done it for, what, six and a half years now, which is quite a long while to have kept that up. And as well, I guess you um, you probably have an image in your mind about how you want the video to kind of flow. And we often get people approaching us like, you know, do you want help editing the podcast? You know, we, in my mind, I know how I want it to sound and what needs to go where. And, it, you know, it's kind of your creation, isn't it? And handing that off to someone else. It, it, I'm not comfortable with that. I that don't that is very true. And I think also mm. when you're making stuff that rapidly, yeah. it, you, you don't, it, it would take me longer to write down what I wanted than it would to <laughs> actually you know, pass it on to, to somebody else to do, do it myself. I mean, I, I even do that to myself. I sometimes go, oh, I mustn't forget to do this, 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 and this tomorrow. And I start making notes and I go, hang on, I'll just do it now while it's still in my head, you know? So it's, yeah. And I think <laughs> you either have to say you're going to have a bigger undertaking and pass on the creative work to someone else and then what comes out will not be exactly what you des desired, but that's fine. And it isn't anyone, a weekly schedule. You know, I, I used to make animated films where I'd make maybe six, seven minutes of footage a year. You know, I, mm -hmm. I'm now doing... 20 minutes of stuff a week you you don't you have to accept errors creeping and you don't get exactly what you want because the pressure of production is there but at least you have more of a creative feel to it if you if you keep control of it and i think the other thing for me is i don't tend to produce stuff like a lot of youtubers do my background is in filmmaking from the the 80s my editing style is very much what would be on television rather than what would be on YouTube. You know, I never jump cut, for example. If I get a take mm. wrong, I do it again. <laughs> I don't just put a cut yeah. in the middle and hope people will be happy with it. And I've often sat in events at YouTube in London at YouTube Space when it was open where people talk about always oh, editing style for YouTube. I think, well, well, there shouldn't be, actually. But my style is if it wouldn't work on BBC One, I, I, I won't put it on YouTube. And I would struggle to communicate that, I think, to a lot of editors today. And I think that really shows as well those kind of high production values and um, it, it sets your channel apart, I think, from many others. Thank you. Thank you. 
Well, do you cover a healthy amount of retro on the channel as well? I mean, do you think it's important to cover the past as well as the future? I do. I, I think it gives us a grounding for where we are. And I think it it's useful to look back to sort of remind us we've come an awful long way very quickly and actually what we do with computers today isn't quite as fixed as people think it is. You know, we've gone through a lot of transition before. Computing hasn't necessarily got better uh, over the years. And um, it gives you that point of reflection. I think also because I'm a lot of tech YouTubers are quite young. Uh, you know, there's a lot of people in their teens and 20s making the sort of stuff I make. And I, I've often thought, well, what is my advantage? And part of it is doing hopefully decent close-up photography. But the other one is I've been in computing a long while. You know, I'm, I'm what, 50 I think it is. So I've been doing this, you know, a, a lot of years. And um, the fact I can bring a, well, this is going on now, but actually this is what was going on then and how it links to it. And I think that gives a, a, a different sort of feel to it. And sometimes I do that by making specific retro videos, but often I'll be referring back to something else in another video. And it just gives a bit of context. I'm shooting um, a video today about Windows 11 and I'm going back to uh, when I bought this copy of Windows 98, you know, and it just gives you a, oh, yes, you know, it gives mm. a bit of context to it. Wh which operating systems from history do you think were like the most revolutionary? I guess we would have to give some credit to DOS, whatever we said. I've just been saying about Microsoft because it clearly did um, PC, DOS, MS, DOS, you know, that set a baseline for, for you know, what, what were the computer industry, to, in, industry today. I'd also go back to things like Sinclair. I think what they did on the ZX81 with the principle of putting everything on the keystrokes to save memory so that commands were stored as single bytes, that was very clever. And, uh, you know, we, we don't tend to appreciate some of the innovation that was forced onto people by trying to run relatively high-level operating systems with very little storage and very little memory. So, again, we're back to, you know, Sinclair did some extraordinary stuff, and it's a shame that some of those ideas weren't, you know, didn't survive. Well, you cover retro storage on your channel as well. I love the video you did on um, Zip and Jazz drives. Oh, yes. I thought that was really interesting. Uh, you know, we forget how easy we've got things today with USB keys and that kind of thing. Yes, um, and, I, and I think that's, again, one of the reasons that the retro stuff is so important because we can get so caught up in what we have these days. So we get actually, you know, storing 100 megadata was actually very difficult for a long while. You know, it's um, the, yeah. the Zip drive was extraordinary, wasn't it, when it came out? I, I remember when it did come out, I was writing um, a book called Management Strategy Information Technology, exciting title. And uh, the editor was working on the cover. And, and I said, oh, I bought this this thing called the Zip Drive. It stores 100 meg on a cartridge. And he was like, oh, I don't believe that. It's said about £10 a cartridge. Can't be true, he says. He said, I've just signed off on some SideQuest cartridges for the cover designer for the book to store the, you know, the, the cover files. And SideQuest cartridges at the time cost several hundred pounds, I think, for a cartridge. To store, I think it, I think it was thirty-five meg. I might be something like that. And it, it only took about eighteen months for the zip drive to completely obliterate all this whole SideQuest technology. It really was a truly revolutionary thing that came in. And yet, people look back at it, get what hundred meg on a cartridge? That's ridiculous, you know. Even the Jazz drive, a gigabyte, and then on, in some respects, two gigabytes, was amazing, wasn't it? And yet, so these days, yeah. USB key, few pounds, few dollars, um, loads of storage. It's uh, we, we don't use stuff as efficiently as we could, I think, because of the, the amount of storage we have available today. And uh, people don't get the click of death uh, now. <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. It wasn't all good. Yes, so true. Well, you covered um, the Apple Newton too and kind of being a fan of portables. Why, why do you think it didn't take off? 
I think it was probably a little ahead of its time, wasn't it? I think many devices at that time were really pushing software ahead of hardware. I mean, even Windows did that for a while, didn't it? Windows was ahead of what the hardware could support. And I think the Newton was so far ahead in that the user interface was beautifully done, probably better done than some of the the graphical systems today. The the way that documents used to sort of be um, scrunched up and thrown in a little trash can and things, these things worked beautifully. Um, But it was... It just the hardware just couldn't support the quality of things like handwriting recognition. Uh, I remember at the time there was um, a very influential book called Computers as Theatre by, by Brenda Laurel, which was all about how computing was really about drama and interaction and the best computing experiences were most dramatic experiences. And very much the Newton and indeed Apple more generally at the time were focused in that, trying to make computing experiences into an experience. We weren't talking about experience at the time, but they would probably make them more emotionally interactive. And the Newton did that brilliantly, but it just didn't have the power to make it happen. And I think, again, it's something that it's a shame we can't go back to that a bit today. If you look to something like Windows 11, then it's all right and it looks quite nice, but it hasn't got that that spark of user interactivity you had on some of those early devices. And that that's, says a great deal about the Newton. Yeah, and I also think, you know, some of the uh, the bad press you got at the time, I always remember that infamous Simpsons sketch where someone tries to write beat up Martin and it autocorrects it to eat up Martha yeah. because it doesn't recognise the, the handwriting on the Newton, which was my experience of using a Newton back then. I mean, it was a great idea, but yeah, I think just the implementation, especially the early revision, you know, it, it, it was like 50-50 whether it'd understand what you wrote down on it. Yes, it, ju- it just wasn't a reliable enough. It was a great idea, which they were close to getting to market. And I guess the problem was at the time, they would have hardware developed and, and they knew themselves, they must have known themselves that things weren't working as well as they should, but they had to launch because ultimately the, it wasn't like, say, Apple today, which has got all the money in the world to develop things and, and only release them when they were, you know, absolutely right. They couldn't afford to wait the few years required to get the processors and the memory required to make the device do what it needed to do. Um, so it's like so much of computing, for a long while, computing was dominated by its hardware. What its hardware could do, it's now moved on to software. It's now moving on to AI. And, and again, we tend to forget that the limitation was there was just not, no power to make these things happen, even at a higher price. And obviously, when the mid-90s came around, you know, multimedia was the, the buzzword mm. then. Um, and I love the fact you covered in Carter in your recent Retro Applications video as well. That was really nostalgic for me watching that. <laughs> um, and did you get into CD-ROMs? And what did you kind of think of that era? I got into them a, a little bit. I, I mean, in Carter was the one that I think I always went back to, whether this is an example of what it, what it could do. I suppose, and I remember that, that, that again, was there was a, wasn't there an Amiga that was based around um, CD-ROM stuff? CD-TV. That's the one. Yes, that was a... Another sadly failed device. Um, I guess the problem was that CD-ROM came along to be used for those purposes just at a time when storage was getting a bit bigger and hard drives were getting a bit bigger and we had things like the zip drive coming in. And so if we hadn't had other, other advantages, it would have been very important. But the you know the 600-ish meg chunk of data, which was extraordinary when we first started to get things on, on CD-ROMs, didn't have as much longevity as being extraordinary. And that probably held back what we could do with that. And, of course, also the internet came along, as we discussed, and people could start to get content by remote connection. And, and the CD was never going to compete with that, which, which was a shame. Early on, it was kind of like, what? how can we fill this? Just shove anything yes. on there. <laughs> it's just yeah. yes. ram up the CD. Yeah. Um, what was your most exciting era in history of your computing? Oh, that's a good question. I think... To some extent, the most exciting would have to be back to the ZX81 days, 
because that's when there was so much potential, you know. And I think the the distance I went from knowing what a computer was to programming in basic to programming in, in, in assembler, which was probably about the space of a year, that was a really amazing time for me. But it was at a time when I was a teenager, and you, you know, if you take an interest in something at that t- at that age, you you get really deeply involved with it. Um, so that was one. I think the other one would be the sort of mid-90s when I was getting into um, PCs and video editing. And I spent a lot of time um, building video editing PCs in, in the mid-90s. And that was, again, really extraordinary to be able to actually handle video, to be able to handle sound and video. One of the things I find amazing about many YouTubers today is they will shoot their sound and video separately. They you know, use a separate audio recorder. And I came from a world where working with film, getting sound sync to film and the two put together was a really hard process. You know, um, mm. one was optical, one, one was on, on magnetic tape. And suddenly with computer-based editing in the mid-90s, all these issues went away. And you could, you know, you could edit a music video perfectly in sync to a track just on your desktop. You know, the fact you could only handle four-minute files was a minor constraint and you were working at half-power resolution, but it worked. And that was such an interesting time because you're – the mix of creative stuff and technical was really strong. You know, to edit video in the mid nineties on a PC at home, you had to be really into hardware and you time know, yeah. code and stuff like that. That's right. It was, and, it was a nightmare. And, <laughs> yeah, and but also, you know, you couldn't do it with a standard hard drive. You had to build a SCSI array. I got into SCSI drives because I had to find a way of getting drives which are faster than what you could do with a, an IDE drive at the time to support even very simple DV video rates. So it really forced you to learn about hardware. And I think that for me was something that pushed forward my what I did with computing. And then I, at the time, I also got into something called True Space, which was a, an early 3D graphics program and that later into Lightwave on, on the PC. And so all that came together, mid-90s for me. You, you could see where it was going to go. And to some extent, what I do today is just the same as that. It's just the hardware's a bit faster, the editing software's a bit nicer. But functionally i'm not doing anything different except resolution wise than what i was doing 10 or even 20 years ago well do you have much of a collection of classic machines i've got quite a lot of old pcs uh, i've still got a ql around i've got the amiga 1200 around i've got quite a lot of old portable devices that, that i've both used myself and other people have given to me over the years when people cleared out their office at work they have like oh i've got this old Windows CE device and, you know, I go, oh, I'll take that, you know, don't put it in the bin. So um, there are cupboards and drawers filled with old bits of hardware here and there. Have you got any more plans to cover retro things on your channel? Certainly, yes. I mean, I, I will certainly this year be doing the QL video. Uh, I'll be looking at an Amiga 1200 video. I've been looking at doing an, an Oric Atmos video. I haven't got one at the moment, but that, I just, I don't know quite why. I was always I was fascinated by the Oric one. So um, I, I'd like to do a an Oric video. I'd like to do something around core storage as well. I, I remember seeing core storage at the National Museum of Computing a few years ago, but I wouldn't mind trying to build some core storage and see if I could actually make it work. Link it up, pay USB or something. That would be fascinating. I love the fact as well that, you know, you're teaching a younger audience about this kind of stuff who probably weren't familiar with it as well. That must be quite satisfying when you, you know, you get kids and teenagers like, oh, I didn't know about this stuff. Yes. And, and when you get that genuine reaction, people, as you say, I literally did not know this even existed. You know, like your point mm. about, People there were computers before they were connected to the internet. It's like a whoa, yeah. you know. It's um, and also I feel sometimes when I'm I remember when I shot this edX eighty one video a couple of years ago that I felt I'm actually archiving stuff. You know, this older hardware is around, 
not everyone on YouTube shoots the best quality, should we? So they, they could do it. Stuff. I feel sometimes I'm producing shots of things that might be picked up by people scores of years into the future. This is what this was like. Because at the time this stuff was made, no one was shooting HD. We didn't have HD, you know. So I do feel there's a sort of responsibility on, on us today to keep the older hardware alive, not just in terms of people who make it work, but people who document it and show it, manage to record the video output from it, which can be a real challenge. And, um, you know, that's something I feel I'm contributing to. Well, Chris, I know you're a futurologist as well. Just one final question. Yes. Um, and this pretty big one. I mean, what do you think retro is going to look like in the future? I mean, we've talked about the fact that we've got, you know, things are more commodity hardware today, you know, rather than unique machines like they used to mm. be. And obviously software is mainly digitally distributed now. Do you think we're going to have like retro in 20 to 30 years and be nostalgic for this era? That That's a fascinating question, isn't it? Because I think what you imply is the retro computing from what the 70s, 80s, 90s in particular, that there isn't a parallel to that in the current world. There will be some games, consoles and things that survive. But clearly, we're not going to have devices people look back to in the same way, I don't think, things that had such a resonance with people's lives. People will remember more the first time they went on the internet rather than the first computer they used, you know, and that's, that will change the retro scene, as it were. I think the other way around, I've always felt that we will go forward, say, 20 years, and we will have um, much more sophisticated AI, and eventually AI with some level of awareness, I'm sure we'll get to that. And for the AIs, they will look back and say, well, what are, what are our roots? Where do we evolve from? And they will be more interested in retro than we are as, as people. Because, you know, this is the, um, you know, we look back to uh, fossil records to see where we came from. AIs will look back to retro computing to see where they came from. And therefore, I think there will be a, a much heightened interest in retro all the way through from, you know, Babbage onwards, because it has become part of, or part of a whole new type of thinking species, if you like. And in time, That'll link into us. We're getting the deep futures here, but you know the the fusion of man and machine. I think is inevitable, and therefore our own evolution is tied up with our creation of computational devices. And that's again means that retro computing is going to become a more and more and more important topic. Uh, it's today it's in, important to some people. I think it'll be more mainstream in twenty years' time than it is today. And will Doom still run on everything? Yes, it will. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chris, it's been absolutely incredible reminiscing with you. Um, I'm sure everyone watches your channel and listens to us already. But of course, explaining computers on YouTube, I'll link up your website in our show notes as well. Thank you so much for coming on and uh, reminiscing with us. It's been great. It's fun. been a pleasure to be on the show. Thank you very much.